Kara. Hey, Chris. How are you? I have a cold, but I'm fine. Oh, my goodness. That's no good. <gasps> no. One of my kids gave me a cold. Uh, my, my, all of my students are, like, snorfling and hacking and, like, gross things are coming out of their facial orifices, and it's really disturbing. Is it orifices or orify or orifix? Oh, I've never heard orifix. I kind of like that. I just made that up, but it sounds good. No, I want to go with it now. <laughs> it's like placentrics or something. Orifixal ooze. Orifixal ooze. That's what's happening to my students right now. And I don't know how I haven't caught it yet. My son, who I share an office with at home, is hacking and I had to help him with his computer. Before I thought about it, I was like hands on his mouse and everything. And I'm like, oh, damn. Get the bleach. Get the bleach. Ugh. But, you know, when you have kids, I'm just like, whatever. What am I going to do? No desire. No desire. That's, that's the, the sole reason I don't want children, clearly, is the increased risk of infection. <laughs> it's not an invalid. Uh, pretty, it's pretty consistent thing. So anyway, welcome to the Sausage of Science. Yes, but we're talking scientific things with orifix and oozing. Yeah, we are. We totally are. We haven't, we haven't actually had anyone on here to talk about infectious disease, have we? It's something we I've been wanting. We talked about immune stuff with uh, Eric Shattuck and like what we, sick behavior, illness. That's behavior. right. Ooh, that's right. Yeah, we talked exactly about this topic with Eric, didn't we? Yeah. All right. Well, I just got a text message from our guest, so let me introduce her. Her name is Maria Nieves Colon, and she got her uh, recently got a PhD from Arizona State University. She studies ancient DNA, specifically in the Caribbean and South America. Her research is focused on looking at ancient DNA indications of Taino or pre-contact Puerto Rican. Mm, okay. populations in South American let Hispanic Latinx populations in general. And there are two papers that we just read. One is a preprint of a paper that's focused on the Puerto Rican communities called Ancient DNA Reconstructs the Genetic Legacies of Pre-Contact Puerto Rico Communities. And she posted a link to that pre-publication recently. And then there's a piece that came out last year that's a review in Current Opinion in Genetics and Development called Genetic Diversity in Populations Across Latin America, Implications for Population and Medical Genetic Studies. And she's the second author on that. And I had a great conversation with her at the AAA last year, hmm. and I've been wanting to get her on for a while. I just- For find a year, basically, since yeah, the AAAs are right around the corner. Exactly. That's true. That's true. And uh, for a variety of reasons, one, because I find ancient DNA research fascinating. Hmm. And I don't understand how they do it at all. I think you made the comment that it looks like a computer language or something. Oh, um, yes, that was earlier today. A computer yeah. language to me, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't understand the methods whatsoever, but the implications fascinate me. And I've long been a fan of John Relithford's work and how he synthesizes some pretty complex DNA studies to show things like gene flow, right? Yeah. To test hypotheses about demic movements or gene flow in all kinds of places. But one of my favorite pieces that I share with introductory students is how we can test using these ancient DNA methods, whether Europe was, well, agriculture spread by diffusion of agriculture from the Middle East, like the behaviors and technology spread, or if people actually got up and walked over there with their stuff and settled 
and kept moving. And it shows that people actually moved. You can see you can see the Kurgan expansion. And I whenever I say that, what it means is the Kurgan areas where Indo-European language supposedly started and did the language travel out or did the people travel out. Mm-hmm. But as a kid who grew up watching Highlander, <laughs> I think of the Kurgan as that guy in the Highlander who's the evil bad guy. But apparently it was an actual real people. I'm also wondering how it's taken us this long, like 60-some episodes in, to have a Highlander reference. I love that We should bring her on. We, we should not dwell on that comment. All right, because I could. Hello. Hi, Chris. Hi, Kara. Hi, I'm Kara. Hi. Hello, welcome to the Sausage of Science. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks. Good. Good, good, good. So you're in California right now, correct? I am. I'm, I'm in Santa Cruz, California right now. Well, you're south, so you are n- obviously not affected by the intentional power outage. Well, it was supposed to affect us, and then it didn't. Um, so we uh, currently have a lab full of dry ice, just in case. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. So if, uh, you know, suddenly you can't see me or hear me, maybe the power just went out in the middle of our interview. Good to know. Good to know. (laughs) Yeah, that's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Anyway, so we like to start off our show with basically the same question for every single guest. And it's all about trying to get to know you, why you became an anthropologist, how you got into it, and why you decided to pursue it as an actual career. Well, I am from Puerto Rico. That's where I grew up. And that's where I studied. And when I was finishing high school and was going to go to University of Puerto Rico, I always was interested in history, but for some crazy reason, I decided in my last year of high school that I was going to study political science. And I went into University of Puerto Rico to try to do that. And after my first year of study, I remember my intro to international relations class, the professor was like, Latin American politics has always been influenced by corporations and there's nothing you can do. And that's it. Basically, just like you're all kind of wasting your time. And that depressed me a lot. So I was like, well, let me just change back into history because that's what I really like. But in Puerto Rico, the history department is separate from the social sciences. It's a completely different school. So for me to change into history, I would have had to repeat my whole first year of college. So I was like, that's not a good idea. Let me go do the closest thing. It looks like that's anthropology. So let me study that. And I fell in love with it. It was probably the best bad decision I ever made, if you will. And when I was an anthropology student at University of Puerto Rico, I was exposed to all of the work of my professors who were mostly studying the pre-contact history of the island. So the indigenous people who were there and sort of their interactions with a colonial conquistadors and such. And I became involved in a lot of these debates that were longstanding in the, in the history of Caribbean archaeology. So where did these people come from? How did they interact once they got to the island? And this is stuff that's been studied for maybe more than 100 years, but it had always been studied through material culture or historical documents. And there were just some parts of these questions that were not able to be addressed with those means. So I decided in my naivete that I was going to solve these questions. <laughs> and in order to do this, I was have to, going to have to study genetics. But there was one problem, and it's that there was, and there still is, no biological anthropology at University of Puerto Rico, and there was no genetic anthropology lab. So I solved this problem by following the only geneticist that was working on, like, Puerto Rican human genomes around and just kind of stalking him at every talk he ever gave. Until finally he invited me to come to his lab. So I did my undergraduate thesis 
working on the genomes of present-day Dominicans. And in the lab, we also study Puerto Ricans. But it was on the other side of the island. So I would take class from Monday through Thursday in the north of the island and then drive for two hours Thursday night, go work in the lab Friday and Saturday, and then come back and do it all over again for like wow. two years. <laughs> So that's what I did, and and then I uh, applied to graduate school. I worked in Ann Stone's lab, and and then I did my postdoc in Mexico, and now I'm here. <laughs> and where are you now? I am in California. I work. Uh, I'm working right now with a forensics company here in Santa Cruz, and we're working on methods for using uh, using degraded DNA methods to look at present day forensic cases. Cool. Okay. Uh, you were talking about how t both of us ancient DNA and the methods behind it just are a complete foreign language. And I know that ancient DNA can be super tricky because of contamination in a lab. And so I was wondering if you could kind of briefly tell us what those methods are like and how insanely careful you must have to be with both your samples and then yourself so that you don't contaminate <laughs> everything. Yeah. So just as a brief reminder to everyone, so we consider ancient DNA any uh, genetic material that comes from organic remains usually anything older than 50 years old, but that can depend because if you have remains that are in very warm or very humid places, basically the DNA can be as badly preserved as something that's 400,000 years old. So it's very context dependent on both the environmental conditions and also the temperature. So when we have a sample that's ancient and we want to look at the genome of that animal or person, we have to first start by sampling the right part of the body. So in humans, we know that a lot of DNA is preserved inside uh, the temporal bone, so inside our ear, because it's very encased and protected. But that means you have to kind of cut open a skull, which is not always possible. So we also look at other parts of the body, like teeth, because they're protected by the enamel, or long bones, like the femur. In other organisms, it might be different parts of the body or of, of the structure. And then we always have to protect the samples from our own bodies because our uh, body is covered in nice, healthy cells that have lots and lots of DNA that can impact our samples by contaminating them with our epithelial cells or maybe we have some saliva or anything like that. So we wear these extensive personal protective equipments. We basically look like astronauts. We have to wear overalls that protect our whole body, and then we cover our eyes, we put our hair up, and we have to double glove, and all the samples have to always be treated as if they were the you know, most biohazardous thing. But it's really for us to protect the sample from our own bodies. Mm. I just Thank saw, speaking of, speaking of that, and, and completely unrelated to your work, but a meme of a dog, a service dog, who's outfitted like that to work in the lab with that. the dog's person. Yeah. That's amazing. I guess, well, as long as that lab doesn't look at ancient dogs, you should still be okay, I guess. <laughs> in addition to working with extensive personal protective equipment, in order to do ancient DNA, we also need a special lab. So we can't mm -hmm. just use any laboratory space. We have to have a space that is encased in positive pressure, that has UV lights to disinfect and decontaminate. And we also have to have very strict precautions with whether or not someone who's working in that space has been exposed to other potential DNA sources. So every day you have to go in, kind of structure your day around your ancient DNA protocols. So you said it was naive of you to want to answer this 100-year-old question, but it, it seems like you have. You, you're getting there. So <laughs> yes. we, just, we just read your preprint for... Ancient DNA reconstructs the genetic legacies of pre-contact Puerto Rican communities, and it sounds like you found some evidence of where those communities 
at least migrated from in South America. Can you tell us what you found? Yeah, so I guess before I tell you what I found, I should give you a very brief overview of why we looked at this question and kind of why it's important. So like I said, the archaeology of the Caribbean has been extensively studied by other people before, but there's kind of conflicting evidence or evidence that can be interpreted in different ways. So we knew that there were multiple migrations into Puerto Rico and the rest of the Caribbean, but we didn't really know where all of these different migrations came from, how many, what happened between these peoples once they reached the islands. Is there a replacement? Are they mixing? We didn't really know that. And the other thing that made it difficult or still makes it difficult to study these ancient populations is that Caribbean peoples were the first Native American communities to encounter European colonization. And that means that a lot of what we know or most of what we know about them is tinted through these colonial glasses, Mm -hmm. which are the historical writings of the conquistadores, right? Mm -hmm. So the colonial documents say that very early on in the 1500s, the indigenous people of Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, they just kind of die out. So there's, there was a huge rebellion, there was a huge fight against the Spaniards, and they all died, and basically everybody just kind of converted to being uh, criollo, and life went on. But these narratives coexist at the same time on the island and in other communities in the Caribbean with present-day islanders who have oral histories of survival and persistence. So there, if you talk to almost any family in Puerto Rico, they'll tell you, I have a story of my great-grandmother or my uh, great-great-great-grandmother being indigenous and maybe surviving or just kind of hiding and, you know, continuing to use her cultural knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. And there are some people who today also claim indigenous cultural identities in the Caribbean. So what our study did was kind of intersect with these two sort of big unknowns and try to provide a genetic perspective to these questions. So where did these people come from? And then what is the relationship between these ancient people and today's islanders? So what we did is we looked at the DNA of 124 individuals across three different archaeological sites in Puerto Rico. And this in itself was super challenging because, as I just mentioned, working with ancient DNA is already difficult, but then working with ancient DNA from a tropical setting is like three times as difficult. Mm. So we sampled 124 individuals with the knowledge that most of them were not going to have enough DNA to continue because it just degrades so quickly. So we used next generation sequencing technologies, and I can explain in a minute what that is, to obtain the DNA and then sequence it. And what we recovered were 45 complete mitochondrial genomes and two partial autosomal genomes. And what that means is we recovered 45 pieces of DNA that are inherited solely through the maternal line and that talk to us about maternal history. And for two individuals, we were able to get a little bit of that genome that's passed on from mom and dad. And so with these data, what we were able to see is that, first off, the indigenous people of Puerto Rico in the ancient times are closely related to today's indigenous communities from the Amazon and the Orinoco River Delta. So this is what is today Brazil, Venezuela, and Colombia. That is something that archaeologists have proposed for a very long time based on similarities in material culture. And what it suggests is that at the time of contact, when Europeans came in, the people who were living in Puerto Rico descended primarily from a large migration of South American communities who entered the Caribbean around 2,500 years ago. That's not to say that there were not other migrations. It's just that these are the ones that we can see through the genetic record. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that we found, and what was, I think, perhaps the most surprising, is that there is 
despite the large population declines that occurred in this region of the world, there still is some survival of ancient mitochondrial lineages, so that ancient part of the genome that's transferred from mom to their offspring into today. So we looked at uh, a lot of different indigenous communities across the Americas, both ancient and present day, to compare to our sample. And in the only communities that we found those same lineages was in Puerto Ricans and other Caribbean Islanders. So that was really surprising to us because if you assume that there was this huge process of genocide, which we know there was, that there was a decline, you really wouldn't have expected to see um, that much persistent if in fact that decline led to the complete extinction of these populations. Just to restate what you just said, because I, I had a, a second of distraction and, and missed a key. <laughs> <laughs> the key thing. So, so what you're saying is not only were you able to font, to substantiate what archaeologists have long suspected that Orinoco River Basin was the source for pre-contact Taino populations or indigenous populations from Puerto Rico, but that the only populations currently that still have those mitochondrial traces are currently in Puerto Rico? Is that what you said? Yes, that's correct. Wow. And it may be that there may be others as well in the Caribbean, but we just haven't sampled those populations to find out, right? But at the moment, with the data that we have, the only place in the world where we found these ancient lineages was in Puerto Rico. And that was really surprising to us. But I guess it shouldn't have been, because part of the oral history of the island and sort of the folk knowledge is of having this uh, cultural persistence of indigenous heritage. And so now we're seeing that there is also some biological. Well, I, I would, not to push back, but I, I think, I mean, there's been a lot of controversy about that. And, and that, that narrative, in, in a lot of ways, from, from my own experience in New York with a lot of Puerto Ricans there, is that this identification with Taino was a way for people to reclaim a pre-colonial heritage. And there was a lot of debate about the legitimacy of that heritage, that it wasn't something that had persisted but that had been a reassertion of an identity that almost came out of anthropology, almost was something they discovered later. And you know what? I think if you ask me, I think both of those things are true. I think there is some persistence, and I think there's also a reinterpretation about what it is to be indigenous, Taino, Boricua, Puerto Rican over time. And these identities are not static, right? They're constantly changing. In fact, I had the experience of talking to people who self-identify as Taino when I went back to the island to um, report results. And some of them were using terms that we as anthropologists have used to name these communities from the past. And we don't really know what these communities name themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Because the truth is that there was some loss. There was some loss of knowledge. There was some loss of DNA. I mean, it's not like we, we're seeing 100% the same genetics of the past and the present. We do see some loss and we do see also new things that come over time. So. I think that there, both of those things are what make indigenous identity in Puerto Rico today, with the past and the present day reinterpretation. I was gonna ask a bit more of a methodological question as to why it's the mitochondrial DNA that you seem to be able to get a whole lot more of, and at least more consistently, than the autosomal DNA. And then what do you think you're missing out in being able to really only look at mitochondrial DNA consistently? What perspective are you not getting, do you think? 
Yeah, so the reason why we were able to recover more mitochondria DNA is because we have a lot more mitochondria in our genomes. So mitochondria are the organelles that produce energy in the cell, and an individual cell can have up to 10,000 mitochondria. But we only have one nucleus in our cell, and that's where the DNA that we inherit from both mom and dad is. This is the reason why for a lot of ancient DNA research, mitochondrial DNA is the locus of choice. The other reason why we wanted to look at mitochondrial DNA is because of previous research that had been done in the Caribbean, which had found a large amount of mitochondrial DNA ancestry from indigenous populations in present-day Puerto Ricans. And we really wanted to compare the ancient people and the present-day people to understand how much of that mitochondrial DNA that we see today came from ancient sources. And this is because there was a lot of movement. So the Spaniards would like relo forcibly relocate people from across the Caribbean and the Americas. And, uh, and, and we were, just weren't sure. And what are we missing out on? Well, we're missing out on quite a lot. So mitochondrial DNA only allows us to see, as I said, female mediated gene flow and migration. So if we have a different process that's happening with the DNA we get from dad, we really wouldn't be able to see that by just looking at mitochondrial DNA. The other thing is that mitochondrial DNA acts as a window that allows us just sort of one snapshot of the past. When we have nuclear DNA, we have two windows. So we get a much more complete picture of what was happening and how that has come into the present. So you may have already answered this question in, in the previous question that I answered, but in your paper, you point out that there's some genetic discontinuity between ancestral populations and descendant populations in the Americas in general. And I wonder what that means for your work in Puerto Rico. Do you see that there as well? Yeah, so this discontinuity is, uh, has uh, several different factors that cause it. One is just neutral genetic drift. So sometimes over time we lose genetic variation without it having any significant adaptive or evolutionary really significance. But also, it's due to the process of colonization, which happened across the Americas. So indigenous people in general were subjected to this forcibly, forcible decline in population sizes, and there was some loss in genetic diversity there. In the Caribbean, this is exacerbated, because as I mentioned earlier, these were the first peoples that encountered colonialism. And so there was this very big loss of cultural and biological diversity there. In the context of our finding in Puerto Rico, this is what is so surprising about finding genetic lineages from pre-contact peoples in present-day populations, especially because there has been just long-standing debate on how these populations countered or responded to the colonial experience. We don't have a lot of archaeological sites from that time, and we also don't have any written records written by anyone other than the Spaniards to say, you know what, there were some populations who survived, perhaps they survived in small numbers and then sort of integrated into colonial society. We don't have that perspective. So using the DNA was a powerful way to sort of get at these stories and try to reconstruct that marginalized experience and try to connect some of these discontinuities that we were seeing in the historical and archeological record. This is not on the sheet, but I, I just was curious, since you said you're from Puerto Rico, have you tested yourself and, and where you where you fit in here? <laughs> yes, I am a classic Puerto Rican with three-way admixture from Native American, European, and African ancestors. This is very common that we see in Puerto Rico. And I will take this as an opportunity to say that in especially in admixed populations, the genetic ancestry and the cultural identity are not always Congress. Mm. So there might be some people who self-identify as indigenous who have 
more or less Native American ancestry than I do, yet we self-identify differently because of our oral histories in our families. And I think that combining the two is, they're related, but they're not, they don't determine each other. Yeah. So that's another, that's another good segue to talk about the review article, because that's a big topic in that piece where you're talking about founder effects and the different admixtures throughout. So I wonder, you're part of a team, it sounds like, or, or, or did some data mining, I'm not sure, looking at large scale samples to, to see what sort of themes there are in terms of admixture and founder effects. And I wonder if you could characterize that a little bit for us. Yes, yeah, so this is work that was really led and conceptualized by my postdoctoral advisor, Andres Moreno Estrada, uh, National Laboratory of Genomics for Biodiversity in Mexico, and by other people such as Chris Gignaud at University of Colorado. And they are researchers who have spearheaded the call for increasing diversity and studying Latin American populations overall as a way to improve in the future precision medicine and clinical outcomes. So the main idea behind this review was that the genetic diversity of Hispanic, Latino, Latinx populations is understudied and really underappreciated. So we use this category Hispanic as sort of a basket. And if you've, uh, if you've ever filled out a census, it's always like Hispanic, Latino, and that's it. But really, yeah. we're talking about the difference between someone that lives in Coahuila, Mexico, and Patagonia, and Argentina, passing through Cuba and Costa Rica and Venezuela all at once. Mm. And those heterogeneous ancestries are not encompassed within one term of Hispanic Latino. And this is important because although these populations may share a common language, may share some common historical experiences, there are a lot of differences because we really are talking about a continent-wide spectrum. So for instance, in Mexico, we see that most admixed populations have native ancestries that are closer to the indigenous people who were living in that part of Mexico at the time of contact. So the Native American component within Mexico is so different from each other that someone in Coahuila and someone in Yucatan will look more different than whole countries in Europe. And we see the same thing when we look within communities. So Puerto Ricans and Afro-Puerto Ricans have sort of different stories and therefore have, may have different ancestries as well. We also know that in the Americas there was a lot of Jewish or converso ancestry and some populations have more of that that ancestry than others. And recently we're also seeing that there was a lot of Asian immigration, which is really underreported in the historical record, but we see it there, mostly because it's through experiences of forced migration. So looking using the genetics, we can really further understand the fine scale patterns of uh, diversity and ancestry in these communities. And that can then be leveraged for us to understand how we can improve medical risk predictions or treatments or even move into precision medicine with these populations. You mentioned a little bit these forced migrations and how much that may have impacted what you're seeing as founder effects. Yeah, so the idea is that in the Americas what we see is sort of a history of serial founder effects. So first there's a founder effect in the peopling of the Americas. As people are moving down from North America into South America, we see sort of serial movements where serial subsamples, if you will, where we have a few individuals kind of moving from one community to the next, founding a new community and such. And that causes a loss in genetic diversity as you go. Later in the colonial period, you see kind of the same picture, except now we're looking at transcontinental migrations. Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, five Spanish guys that come on a ship and then people a whole island with their offspring with some ethically questionable practices, of course. To say the least, right? (laughs) Right. And that means that the European ancestry component of the people who live today on that island, and I'll use Puerto Rico as an example, 
is really circumscribed to just those five guys. Of course, there's more than five, but in this example. And that means that the effect of genetic drift in that population is a lot stronger. So in Puerto Rico, for instance, the European ancestry component of present-day Puerto Ricans is quite different from what you see today in Spain because it really comes from a very small founder population. And what that means is that just by chance, we see a lot of variants that are infrequent in other larger populations drift to very high frequency in the Americas. Mm. So when we're thinking about, for instance, a recessive disorder or risk for a disease, that risk or that the frequency that disorder might be higher in these populations because of this serial founder effect. And it's really something we need to take into account if we're trying to understand, for example, genome-wide association studies and loci that might be involved in functional traits that have been discovered in, let's say, Europe, for instance, using that in the Americas to try to predict disease risk might not work really well because of these conditions. So you, you, the paper is really heading toward that point of the importance of this knowledge for medical genetics. And so are there any recessive deleterious disorders that are at higher rate because of founder effects in these populations that you know of? Yeah, there's been a few studies, not that many, but that's changing as we move into larger sampling. So there was a study that was done by Jillian Balvin, co-author on the paper, and Emer Kenny, where they found a variant involved in a collagen disease in Puerto Ricans that was at about 2% uh, frequency in the population, which is very high when you think of about a population being relatively small. And it's a variant that's very infrequent or very rare in other populations. And the reason why we think this was at such high frequency is because it was found in this Native American component that is very common in Puerto Ricans and comes from pre-contact period peoples. We see similar cases in other places. In fact, right now with my postdoctoral advisor, Andres Moreno, we are looking at genetic diversity in traditional lifestyle populations in Peru to try to understand whether this might be one of the reasons that explains the very high frequency of preeclampsia in these populations. So mm. preeclampsia is a condition of pregnancy in which there can be complications that can lead to a mother and offspring death. And we think that maybe the high frequency of this condition in this region might have something to do with altitude adaptation and a very high Native American ancestry in this group and how sort of these, what are the evolutionary consequences of adapting to altitude and does that influence risk? And that risk might be different in Peru than it is in, for instance, Colorado, where this condition is also very common because of altitude. Hmm. So this, it's really an active area of research, but as Latino populations in all the diversity of what that means, increase... In, in the U.S., it's going to become more and more relevant for health systems and also for understanding the genotype-phenotype interaction. That high-altitude thing is really fascinating. Uh, <laughs> always when I talk about high-altitude in class and I tell students that, you know, Tibetan populations versus Ethiopian populations versus Andean populations all have very different adaptive routes for dealing with the exact same type of environment. So that'll be really cool to see what comes out of it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's work that's ongoing. And I should say that it's also a team. And maybe this is a good moment to say that this is a team that combines researchers from the U.S., Mexico, Peru, and other Latin American countries. And it's part of the effort also to build local capacity for research within Latin America so that Latin American researchers can study their own populations in collaboration with uh, labs from other parts of the world. Because that's also a very important point about why these communities are underrepresented right now in genomics. Good point, and thank you for sharing that. 
this is going to make me sound like a total idiot after that very generous tip of the hat to your collaborators. But when you started talking about Asian migration, I started thinking, remembering the first time I ever had mofongo was in a Chinese food restaurant in Ponce. You know what? This is so funny that you say this because Asian Latino cuisine is a thing. And it's very different in every, I'm sorry to say this is a little bit um, discriminatory, but every Chino Latino restaurant you go to, like they might not actually be Chinese. They might be the descendants of different Asian migrations that came to Latin America, but they're all called Chino Latino, right? Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> There's some great Chino Latino or Chino Cuban restaurants in just uh, the Hell's Kitchen area of New York that I used to go to as well. Very, very different. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by that. And I will say that making mofongo was my sort of family oral history. So I have to shout out to my dad for teaching me how to do that. Right on. So <laughs> the next time I see you, if we're in a, in a circumstance where food can be had, I'll either beg you to make me some or take me someplace good because that mofongo was not good. I have had good mofongo, but I love food. And you know what's the most interesting part of that is that mofongo is an Afro-Caribbean dish, right? This comes through slavery that they bring these plantains from into the Caribbean, but it's being made by the descendants of Asian migrants in a, in a Latino community in the U.S. I mean, that's anthropology in like one dish if you really think about it. I love that. <laughs> I think it's also a really good segue to another question that we, we ask all of our, our guests it seems that you like food and enjoy food and food was a part of your family history. Do you use cooking as like balance in your life or what other fun things do you do outside of ancient DNA lab work? I actually do enjoy cooking quite a lot. It kind of relaxes me to just make food when I come home from work. So right now I'm actually getting a, big, a good tour of video games. My partner is a video game designer and so I have been learning how to play video games. I did not know how to do that previous to this experience. I am now a fan of Overcooked and it's really fun to see how I can't make a hamburger in video games at all. So that's great. Well, you got into this new goose game where you are a goose who goes around and torments people? No, but that sounds super fun. Yeah. I want to try to play this new human evolution game that is going to come out soon where you're like a hominid and you kind of go through navigating all these environments and trying not to fall out of trees. And it's supposed to be like insanely hard, like Lucy fell out of a tree kind of hard, you know? Yeah, no, so it, it's out. And I've been told it's really frustrating because they try to make it realistic and like you don't get to make a fire on the first try. <laughs> right, this is why our effective population size is so small, right? Because of the scenario. <laughs> Right on. The worst part of this is that we think this is hilarious, right? Like, <laughs> Because we are the product that has benefited from all that hard. Yeah. And so we, we have the benefit of looking back on it with happiness. It's like me going, oh, preeclampsia, how fun. <laughs> yes. For us scientists. Sorry, people. So how can folks find out more about your research and get a hold of you if they want to read more papers and get in contact with you, if you want to be gotten in contact with, et cetera? Yeah, so I will say that since the Puerto Rico study came out, I've gotten a lot of emails and Twitter messages from people, especially in Puerto Rico and in the U.S. Puerto Rican diaspora. And I want to take this opportunity to say thank you if any of them are listening. I do get your emails. I try to respond. You know, just give me a minute. If anyone else wants to contact me, I'm on Twitter at MidoPR. And my email is mnevesc at asu.edu. Nice. Kara, how can folks get a hold of you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kara Akabak. And you, Chris? 
at Chris underscore L-Y, or you can just send me an email at cdlin at ua.edu. Subscribe to the Sausage of Science and send us good reviews on iTunes and give us five stars and all that stuff. Thumbs up are good too. Thumbs up are good. And a huge shout out. Thank you to our producer, Caroline Owens, who makes us sound smart and witty and gets rid of all of our BSery throughout each episode. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. You did such a marvelous job of explaining what seemed very complicated when we read it in a way that made absolute perfect sense. So wonderfully accessible. Very gracious of you. Thank you so much for having me and I hope to see you soon.